We often hear that diversity, equity, and inclusion matters to businesses, but their data tells a different story. So what is the missing piece? On Finding Diversity, we tell real stories of what has worked for others and provide experiences that will inspire you. I'm Justice Thompson, and this is where our journey begins. Let's start with Cape U. So, you know, Derek, is you're familiar with this, um, but essentially it's one thing about your younger self, one thing you like about your culture, uh, and something unique about you. So I'll go first just to give us kind of introduction of how it goes. Something about my younger self. I use this one all the time. I'm sure listeners are tired of hearing about it. It's born in Wyoming. Not a lot of black people born in Wyoming. That's why I keep bringing it up. The other thing that's unique about my culture, and we, I think, share this in common, is I really like... Uh, high school sports. Like, I think it's very unique. I think it's something very centric uh, to the US or Americas um, that a lot of other countries, or especially Europe, doesn't actually have. Remember, we had an exchange student from Spain, and he was just blown away that they got to play soccer every single day after school. And it wasn't like a league or something he had to go, you know, sign up for. So it was very interesting uh, and something that I really enjoy. Like, they shut down schools on Friday. Like, if you're from the South, like, they shut down the town for Sunday night football. I think that's, that's something really, really special and unique and something unique about me is I've been growing my hair out to donate it. Most people don't know that. They just think I like long hair. Uh, I don't, but once again, I I think it's for a good cause. So I don't mind looking, looking stupid for a little bit, as long as I get to donate some hair. So that's my KBU and then I'll hand it over to you. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so something about my childhood, um, I will say I was a military brat and I went to 16 different schools. (laughs) So um, when you say the South, I know the difference between the South and the North and how everything like operates and it operates very differently. Um, So the second question, which is, so it's one thing unique about your culture. So something you like about your culture or anything like that. So, so one thing I like about my culture is um, the resilience. Mm. They're very, very, very resilient people uh, and uh, go through a lot um, and still come out on the other side. So when you speak about your culture for our listeners, is that like you and your family unit? Me, my family unit, and um, just uh, if you look, over history, the, just the African American experience in the U.S. Like, um, yeah. there's been a lot, uh, you know, that's gone on, you know, to us in the U.S. and just coming here and different things. And um, you know, um, we, we've been pretty resilient through through a lot of it, uh, and it is pretty cool. Like when you look back and you read about the history um, of you know African American culture, like it's pretty awesome to see you know, um, where, where we've come, you know, since. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm excited to get into that a little bit more later in the podcast. I know that you are fundraising and we had yeah. talked with Ab and David about some of the struggles as being a black or brown founder trying to raise. So I'm excited to, to dive into that a little bit later. And the last question I'll, I'll softball to you and then we can just kind of take this conversation wherever we want is something, uh, unique about you so 
something unique about me. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, something unique about me is that I'm a twin. <laughs> yeah, like, that's <laughs> yeah. an easy one, right? There's two of me in this world. <laughs> yeah, so, that's like a softball. You'd be, you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm a twin. But I suppose if you are a twin, it's like an it's like an opinion. Like you just assume, like you're like, yeah, yeah. I thought everyone yeah. was a twin. I I don't assumed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you think you're normal until you like go into a store and you're with your twin. And you go into the, a store and you think he's somewhere else and he just went into that store and people are looking at you like, hold up, you just left and now you switch clothes. Like, what the heck? Like, you know, so uh, um, you start realizing that it's a little different than being just one person on the earth. So I've, I've always wondered if, you, if you're a twin, have you ever had your brother take your test for you? Or do you ever take yes. your brother's test? You I, did I took this test. Yeah, <laughs> we got to share the story now. How, how yeah. did this happen? <laughs> I took a lot of uh, his test because I was more. I, I, I like math, um, so what he would do is get in trouble and um, be sent out to the hall, and then uh, he would go to the restroom. I'd be in there and switch clothes, and I'd do his test and then switch clothes back. And yeah. We've done all you can think of as twins. <laughs> I'm sure if there's one of like your, your former teachers listening to this podcast, they're like, I knew they were doing that. Because I'm sure if you're a teacher, you can't be like, I think you're the other twin, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. What a great story. Awesome. Well, I think that actually leads perfectly into kind of the next question, just to go back to kind of where you started and, and help our listeners understand is I had the privilege of in Techstars, we kind of have this tradition where once a week, a founder shares what we call their founder stories. We never share them outside. We never talk about them. Um, I found yours super, super powerful. And I was hoping you'd be willing to share a little bit of kind of that founder journey that you'd be willing to share with our listeners if you are, because I think it is, it's one that's extremely powerful and one that I think a lot of people could benefit from hearing. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. So um, I started entrepreneurship um, uh, when I was 12. My, my father, he he had a drug addiction. Um, and my mother, she was a military mom, so she was off on a military trip at the time. And, um, you know, this is the one time we actually needed him, right, to, to be responsible. Um, but uh, we came home one day, and I think it was fifth or sixth grade, and just literally everything in the house was gone. Um, and me and, uh, my brother, um, and I, you know, I had an older sister at the time and, oh, I have an older sister, but, like, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we wanted to help mom and, and I actually borrowed my friend, his name is Brian Gardner, uh, lawnmower. And I say, Hey, let's, let's try to help mom and let's try like mow lawns. And so we, we mow lawns, um, all that summer, the summer just had started. Um, and my mother was off on a military trip and she came back for the day and then had to go back. Cause of course she had to bring the money in. Um, so we didn't tell her cause she didn't really want us to mow lots because, uh, you know, you cut your fingers off. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, my sister, she would, uh, we would, we would ride our, our, take our lawnmower with our bike and ride up and down like it was Omaha. Uh, so we ride up and down these hills in Omaha. Um, and ask people to cut their lawns. And that summer we did like 30, 3,800 the first summer. And, and my sister would, um, some days when she was off, cause uh, she would work as a, as a bagger at, at, at 
the um, grocery store. And the day she was off, she'd take our like lawnmower and drive it, you know, in her little two-door Aspire, like, you know, to some of these like further out places where we got, you know, some, some lawns and stuff. So um, yeah, yeah, we, we did that all summer, made about 3,800. And then we said, Hey, you know, we, we showed our mother our money. We like helped buy things around the house. And um, she, she was pretty impressed. Uh, and then that next summer we did, I think 5,200. Um, and then uh, we told, we set our mom down and told her we wanted to buy a hot dog cart um, to like uh, um, try to like expand into business and do this and do that. So um, she Why a drove hot like dog cart. Why a hot dog cart? It was the only thing we could afford at the time. <laughs> like, I mean, and, and, and you know, it was it was it was still hefty. It was, I think it was about seventeen hundred or two thousand dollars or something like that. Um, but with the funds that we had left over, we were like, "Hey, let's let's try something new." And also, we had moved to another military base at the time. Um, in that military base, there's a company called Percern, and they took over all the lines. So we need to like switch our game up a little bit. <laughs> so, um, that's that's what got us to to going into the hot dog cart, and we would then do events like in the area on weekends and stuff. Um, which that 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 we we start our first one and we were making about about six thousand on weekends. Like um, it was a nice six secondary six thousand a weekend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my so God. like we do like events and um, these events there'll be you know people there and we got our license and all of that. And our mother is super helpful with all this stuff and um, she she like help us get these licenses and things like that and. Um, yeah, yeah, we do like three, four thousand a day, like, and, and, uh, would take that and then, uh, you know, buy more stuff. And next thing you know, it turned into, uh, like, uh, uh, it was called Ritz Fish and Fries because Ritz is, is my grandpa's hotel. He was amongst 1% of hotel owners back in like the 1970s that were black. (laughs) Uh, And he owned a couple of houses um, and a pretty big hotel. Uh, And um, uh, we kind of brought the name back and called it Ritz like fish and fries, but really it it was like this concession stand of like fish and fries, hot dogs, you know, funnel cakes, a little bit of everything. And uh, we kind of expanded this thing throughout like high school. Like, so as we were going through high school, we kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, um, all the way into college. I think this is one reason I personally, Derek, I love you. And and (laughs) you're one of the people I look up to because you basically just said when you were 12 year old, 12 years old, you started mowing lawns to make money, said you made $3,500 after that first summer and then what maybe three four years later you're making that same amount in a weekend is that right 14 we started at 14 the 14 14, you went 12 to 14 is the 14 about six thousand. yeah about six thousand and (laughs) fourteen 14 15 16 17 and then 18 um until we moved out and went to college 
if this doesn't sound like a Mark Cuban founding story or like, <laughs> like, like I'm, I don't know why you don't own an NBA team. I assume it's coming. It's like in the plan soon. Maybe it'll be Atlanta. I don't know, but I am assuming like that's the next step for you is you're going to, you're going to own an NBA team, but tell me what happened after college. So you had this amazing entrepreneurial journey, obviously. How did that inform kind of what you, what you did in college? So yeah, we went into college. Like so, I can't name the school. I'll, I'll explain why I can't name the school. But we use a lot of that money for uh, um, things like you know to help out around the house and a lot of different things. So by the time we went to college, um, you know, it, it was it was still financially tough, right? Um, so I, we were trying to get become an RN. Um, this is like the perfect thing to explain all this stuff. A lot of these things I keep like in because I, I don't want people to feel any sort of way. But this is this is the best time to explain all this stuff. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I wanted to become an RN because it was free housing and we didn't have money for housing. So um, when uh, you know we f- filled out for it to become an RN, we found out we didn't get it because they thought that we would um, be. You know, they said that they think we probably do do drugs, like do alcohol and, and like smoke and stuff. And they didn't want us to become an RN. Um, and I found this out on from an insider in, inside this committee. They were like, we don't know if they're going to do what they're supposed to do. So we're not going to pick them. Right. Just assuming a whole bunch of stuff because we never even to this day, I've never drunk and smoked anything in my life. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and I was like, what the heck? So we had to stay in our cars that first semester. So six months. Um, uh, and so we drove back and forth. And then the days we stayed, we, we like stayed in our cars because we want to like start college as soon as possible because, you know, we, we want to start life you know, <laughs> as soon as possible. So and this was you and your um, twin, right? Doing this together. Yeah. 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 And yeah. It just sounds kind of insane to me that so the reasoning they gave you was that they thought that you would be some type of bad influence on other students. Yeah. They didn't give me the reason it was an insider that gave me, I said, why didn't they pick us? We were perfect. And as we kind of went throughout the school, like the college experience at this school, like it was, um, it was, it was, it was tough. I got in a lawsuit with them and it was, um, uh, you know, there was so many things, uh, like the N word carved on the wall, like, you know, being accused of many things, police showing up to like, it was a mess. I don't know how we got out, but we got out with multiple degrees. <laughs> like, like uh, they, they, you know, kicked my brother out. Um, and uh, um, he had the same question, the same answers on the test, exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, uh, gave him 11% and the other guy got an 87%. I'm sure we know what the other guy looks like, but he got an 87%. And this, like that, literally that percentage is the reason why he didn't technically pass. Uh, and it took him out of school for a year, just trying to do anything to crush us, but we came back, finished it. And uh, also sued them. So <laughs> it, it was a tough couple of years, but um, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was tough. But yeah, there's so much there out. to unpack. Like, I'd love to spend a whole episode just kind of diving into that and, and talking through that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it was, it was a mess, but it's good because we got a lot of curriculum change uh, mm-hmm. at the school. 
uh, during this process. And that was part of the agreement. And uh, so that hopefully other people won't go through it. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, tell me what you did after college. So what was, uh, what did you do after college? You graduated. What was next? Yeah, so actually while in college, we started T berries. Um, Cause we wanted to try to keep ourselves like busy uh, cause we didn't want, you know, this stuff to kind of like bring us down. So, um, you know, uh, that that's when we started T berries and um, it sounded crazy at the time. I was like, Oh, we're going to start this chocolate covered strawberry business. I have different like <laughs> varieties and stuff. Um and uh you know it was it was it was definitely uh woman motivated right? <laughs> 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 trying to get girls in college right but um uh, it worked out well um uh, my mom she went overseas uh and uh she came back and we put some money together and it was like 25,000 on top of the world right $25,000 um and uh yeah we we took those uh funds um and i found a way that like i built this custom chocolate covered strawberry box um so that like we could ship them across the u.s uh and um i uh then built we, we like built this website and we didn't have any more money left for marketing and then we were like what the heck how are we going to do this so um i started really getting creative there <laughs> i started thinking of some weird weird ways to market and i'm be honest everybody thought it was crazy but it all worked um so i, I said you know uh i was watching the steve harvey show one day and i was like why don't we go on steve harvey show because i saw two twins on the show and they were like you can't just say you want to go and see Harsh. I'm like, yeah, why don't we do it? Like, you know, um, so to get my brother to do it, I said, do you believe in yourself? And he's like, well, yeah, but I said, okay, so then go. <laughs> it's only 10 hours. So we drove 10 hours uh, to deliver these boxes of, of, of berries. Uh, and they got back to us um, within a few hours and was like, this is amazing. I think you guys are awesome. We'll love you on the show. Like it, it was like, <laughs> yeah, crazy. Right. <laughs> um, so then I, I was like, you know what? Like, um, why don't we be the chocolate version of cake boss? Like, and so I, I literally like drove, I think it was Maryland at the time. No, like Virginia or DC, DC. Mm-hmm. And I drove out DC, um, and I probably sound like a like a weirdo, but I inspected the building because I found out the CEO like works there, of course. And I was like, oh, she looks like she's over here. And and then and the reason why I was doing this, because I wanted to see what proximity was a lot of the people that she apparently talked. To. And it was apparently on the same floor. And I know this sounds crazy. Just hear me out. here. <laughs> like, so whenever you see these images of these people that operate, you see like they're on a certain level. Um, of the building. And I found out they were all on the same level, um, by some examination. Right. <laughs> and, um, so I say, you know what, I think what I'm going to do is try to get their attention is I want to send a box to everybody, but I'm not going to tell them I sent a box to these people, but I know they talk to each other and hopefully it'll become a talking point. And, uh, it did, it worked. <laughs> so, uh, about a month and a half, uh, 
later, uh, we got a call and they were like, hey, this is DLC. I think what you guys are doing great, you know, potentially could be a great opportunity. You guys are saying like chocolate version of Cake Boss, that might be pretty cool. Like, you know, can you get a sizzle reel like shot? And yeah, I can get a sizzle reel. And I'm like, how the hell do I get a sizzle reel shot? <laughs> right? Like, I can't shoot a sizzle reel. So I started reaching out to a whole bunch of production companies that have done like this. Mm-hmm. And um, I found one that seemed interesting. So <laughs> sounds crazy. I drove to North Carolina and uh, it was figure eights production who did um, John and K plus eight and a few others. Yeah. Uh, and um, they got back to us and came out and shot a sizzle reel for the sh- um, show. Now we didn't get this show. Uh, <laughs> because like at that time, cake boss's numbers started declining and it was like, uh-huh. is this thing over? Like, you know, um, which it was actually, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, story. And then I, I um, saw Kiplinger magazine. I was like, Hey, well, let me try to like get into the magazine. So I did the same concept um, with a lot of the people and I found out, so I had an insider there and I found out when they all met, and I made sure I drove down and got these delivered at that exact time so that they were all in the same room. Um, and then that's how we got in Kiplinger magazine. I just want to state for the record, you brilliant, man. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, I think I, I, I see your hesitation and like, don't want, want people to think a certain way about kind of like what you're doing as if it's, uh, but I think all great entrepreneurs do exactly what you did. Like, like half <laughs> is getting the work done. It's funny. Cause I think we have this kind of conversation that when a white male does it, how innovative, how, how, how brilliant. But when we do it, it's how manipulative. Can't believe you would do that. You're, you're gaming the system. I'm playing the game that, that you told us how to play, like that they don't look at someone who looks like me or looks like you with how amazing that person accomplished that. That's so innovative. And they use it as a thing to hold against us. You know, like the only person that, that like really – resonated with like the story and understood like was Marlon. Like he heard my story um, and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to support you because I think that you guys, I think you have what it takes. And he's investing in a lot of massive businesses, like at the first early stages of them. I mean, I didn't know that he would see that in me, but it was really cool to hear that, you know, he, he saw it in me and, and he's been a huge supporter of, of store cash and, and really, really helping us. And it's great because he's also turned into one of the biggest investors, the biggest African American investors in, in VC um, yeah. ever, you know? So. Yeah. so Derekus, tell me about store cash and the people it serves. So store cash, uh, is a way to build generational wealth uh, among underrepresented communities um, through banking, um, through cash back, highest cash back in the industry. Uh, and also um, we'll be working with some companies to provide um, some credit uh, um, reporting and, and also how to build credit. How does that help those underserved communities? So in a lot of these underserved communities, they don't really understand how to build generational wealth. And this will give them the information that they need in order to know how to. Um, in these communities, it's not taught. Um, but in other communities, um, it's, it's the only thing they worry about. Uh, so I want to make it relevant within these communities. 
Makes a lot of sense. So how has it been raising for StoreCash, right? StoreCash is venture backed, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, it's been tough. It's been tough, tough, tough. Uh, it is um, the, the hardest thing I've ever done. The, the hard part about it is that to see the same VC firm say no to you, but yes to someone that looks more like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs or you know, Elon. Um, but when they see you, there is really not that many representations of you. So they don't know who to compare you to. And in a lot of cases, they just say no. Um, and that is, you know, that, that's what I normally get. I get, well, um, you know, we love what you do. We think you're great, but but we're going to pass. And it's just like, okay, but why? And And there's no real why there. Uh, so, um, you know, throughout my life, I've kind of dealt with these things and I kind of know what it is. And I don't, I don't, you know, I, I try my best to pause on saying the person's racist. I, I, I want to say more of an unconscious bias, mm-hmm. um, that I think, and, and which is a form of racism, but, <laughs> um, I say unconscious bias so that I can get that other person to listen and understand, like, Hey, you know, because you haven't seen me doesn't mean that, you know, I can't make it or I, you know, that, that doesn't exist. You know, so. For context, uh, Derekus and Kuru were part of the same Techstars class. If you haven't listened to our, our former podcast with Dave and Kuru and the Kuru guys, would definitely go check it out. But one of the unique things that both of them shared um, and, and few others in the, in the cohort uh, actually, you know, also had this. Uh, was actually uh, positive month over month growth. And to me, that was a thing that stood out and I could not wrap my head around how store cash was not raising money at the same rate as some of these other companies that I was alongside and got to see pretty closely and just other ones that I've been connected with um, that really hadn't shown any revenue, hadn't really shown anybody willing to bite, willing to actually put their money on the table, but had, you know, done something where they had said, oh, we've gotten a hundred signatures of buyers who said they will buy once we have a potential product in the future. And they would invest in that idea, but they would pass over your investment, even though you were positive and had, you could show month over month, actual money that was coming into the bank. I think blew me away. And I think those are the type of inconsistencies that when we see in the VC world and you get a response that is, well, you know, we're just going to pass and they can't give you a reason for why. And then they go invest in another company. I think that is why the VC community really, I think, has somewhat of a bad rap because it doesn't make sense. Like, why are you investing in this opportunity? And they'll say, oh, it's because it's Margaret and it's really about team and founder. Yet, when you when you say that and they <laughs> they say it's us, we're like we have the same size market. We both said we're going out uh, after the same size market. We've said that that we're doing essentially the same thing. They're actually saying they're hypothetically solving this problem. I'm saying I'm really solving this problem, and I have month over month growth and an eighty percent retention rate with customers. I want you to talk to that because I think that must have been so frustrating for you as a founder who had checked all these boxes of everything that VCs say at all these communities and when they get up to speak about, oh, well, if you have this, 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 and this, we're interested. 
because you'd worked for Google. You had team members who'd worked for the biggest <laughs> like tech companies out there as the head of your CTO. Like it, it was amazing the team you, you were able to build, the progress you were able to show, yet no one was willing willing to buy on it. Or people did, but it just took them so much longer than I think some other founders that we know. Yeah, yeah like it's just, yeah. Like, you know, um, I've been like previously worked at Google, Apple, Facebook, um, my co-founder of four or five different Fortune 500 companies. Um, uh, And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm black. Uh, My co-founders are Indian. Um, And it's it's it is amazing. And and we even got, you know, I I think I explained this to you um, a while back, but. Um, someone even stole our idea, like literally the most stilling that you could of our idea and raised around about 200 million on it. And, you know, and, and of course that person is white. <laughs> it's just like, you know, how is so, and I'm okay with that. It's just like, give me like 10% of that and I can still beat him but I can't beat him with one or 2%. Like, you know, so like. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there. And I think it goes back to that kind of competitive nature that if I'm not asking for uh, handouts here, we're just asking for a fair shake. Don't steal my shit. Use all, all of my IP and then go raise $200, 200 million. And then act like I wasn't like somehow something's wrong with me because I can't compete. There's always a sense as a black person or as a person of color, black or brown, that when you're in a room, you're representing not just yourself, but your actions then reflect upon all other black and brown people that will come after you. It's a lot of stress. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think we need to acknowledge like that is a, that is a heavy burden. Like that is something that is, it's hard, especially when you're in rooms that aren't necessarily welcoming, <laughs> let's say, yeah. where you can sense like, yeah, people really don't want you there. And I also think there's a unique thing too of, I think a lot of people think of Martin Luther King or think of these other issues when you come to diversity, equity, inclusion. And I always, you know, tell tell people if if you looked at a picture of uh, the march of any of his marches, and there was no one behind him, it would have been really meaningless. I'm not sure the picture would have been taken, and that's because it takes you don't stand alone, even as the leader of the visual. And I think people forget like. Sometimes my job is not to be, and oftentimes I'm, I don't think of myself as that person that is MLK, but sometimes my job is to be in the back and be extremely supportive and outspoken and show up the day of the march, go out of my way to make sure that when Martin Luther King is, is walking across that bridge or walking down, you know, I forget the boulevard in Washington, D.C., when they're watching on, Mar- on Washington, I'm in the crowd. Can't see my face. <laughs> don't even know I'm there. I'm not even in the picture, but I'm present. And I think that's that's so important. I think that's how you end up changing spaces, right? Like it takes all the black and brown folks in the VC industry to stand up and take their lumps for hopefully one day someone to to be able to stand up and, and really make a difference in, in the space. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like, I think if we all like stand up and, and we're not even asking, like, we're not asking for a lot, like, mm-hmm. Like I like I told you, I said the guy raised two hundred million. I said I can beat him if I got ten percent. Like I'm, I'm not even asking for fifty percent. Not asking for seventy eight. I can beat him with 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 twenty percent or, or like ten percent. 
But like, you know, I just need, I need that opportunity. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I'll get it. I keep, keep at it just like everything else in life. Um, And uh, you know, this life may be a hard one for me, but it'll be easier for the people to come after me. (laughs) I also love about your story is that at no point were you like, okay, I guess I'll give up. I'll I'll go, I'll go do the, the next thing. You were like, okay, cool. You have obviously blocked me from making money in this route or from pursuing education. I'm gonna go over here and start another company to keep my mind off of that. And I think, you know, VCs talk about it all the time of how they love resilient founders and founders who will do whatever it takes. How is that not whatever it takes? You've been doing that your whole life. Like I think for people of color, black and brown folks, they're like, yeah, that's my Monday. <laughs> but like, yeah. what do you mean whatever it takes? Like I'm about to go into a job where I know my boss is racist. I know they're racist. I know they're not going to treat me the same. I know they're not going to say things. And it's not just brown and black people. I think it's a lot of uh, marginalized groups. They're like, no, like th- this is normal. And so, in fact, it would be such a better investment strategy to invest in those group of people, or at least equally, because those returns, when that founder faces something, they're not going like, oh, how, how do I solve this? This is crazy. They're like, okay, it's Monday. This is what we need to do. Like, it, it doesn't crush you because you, you're used to it. I, I think it's it's one of those things that is an advantage. And I wish VCs saw that. Like, when you look at your life story, it's like, yeah, is Derek is going to close shop? When all of a sudden half of his users stop? No. Is Derek just going to close shop when all of a sudden, you know, his CTO quits? No. Like, you kidding me? You, you see, Have you seen the proof in the pudding of, of what he's responded to? So I just absolutely love it. I think it's such a such an excellent point of like the resilience is so, so spot on. So when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, what do you think is one of the missing pieces? So one of the missing pieces, uh, and I want to like focus more on the VC world, uh, is there needs to be more representation of what the world looks like in their investments. You know, we see a lot of, you know, of the founders and even now, like a lot of the people that take over a lot of these companies that were started, um, by, uh, you know, mostly Caucasian people, Right. Most of the people that take over these companies are Indian. <laughs> if you really look at Silicon Valley, like, um, and, you know, I've been there, like, and, and lived at these, you know, and worked at these companies and, and, and lived there. Most of the people there aren't Caucasian. Most of them are Indian and Asian. Um, and, you know, but I don't see, you know, um, Indian, Asian, and, and, and there is a small percentage of black people, right? But there needs to be a reflection of the people that they're investing in, um, of, of the people that they're actually representing within the community or within uh, these spaces uh, that, that, that they're trying to penetrate. And most of them are um, spaces of color. Yeah. I also think it maximizes your returns as a VC, like to your point of why it's a missing piece. It's not just a it's also, it's a good thing to do, but it's also would maximize your returns. And what we mean by that is all studies now show, we don't really have to make the, the case for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You increase profit and you increase profit because you actually have people in the room that are experiencing things in different ways and understand. So if you're a makeup company or you do something and one of your customers is a makeup company, I use makeup because it's an example uh, of Jason's book that he has a, a thing called Four Shades of Brown. And somehow some makeup company thought that there were only four shades of brown. 
And I'm sure for any women of color out there, they're laughing their heads off that they somehow thought that only four shades of brown would cover all shades of brown. But they made 36 shades of brown for white people. So obviously they knew there were more shades of, of white than there were brown, but there are only four shades of brown. Um, but I think it's interesting because when you think about it from an investment perspective, how much more traction could you get in a lot of these early stage startups if founders were actually diverse? Because they think about it in a different way. They don't actually see, like everyone else had t- always seen the market as these 32 shades of white and these four shades of brown. Imagine if you invested in a founder that, that saw that there are, there's this entire community out here, a huge market of folks that need to be served and are currently underserved. That means even your current total addressable market when it's based on historicals is wrong because it's actually excluding a huge portion of the market that's underserved. And that's what VCs need to realize is you failing to, to, you know, commit to diversity of inclusion and really diversify your investments is hurting you. It may be hurting us, but, but you are actually getting lesser returns than you could be getting if you were taking a more intentional uh, approach. You know, and this brings back what I was what I was thinking about earlier. Um, Mac, his whole thesis is: I invest in people of color, and they give a thirty percent better return than Caucasian entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And based on the numbers, the amount of black people that have been invested in. A lot of white people have been invested in. There's been 30%. They perform 30% better. And he's not like, this doesn't even just like explain that, that component. It also brings in, you know, like he has like four or $5 billion companies under him. Like, mm-hmm. And he's like, these were companies back when he had a very small fund. Like, and now he has a, you know, a hundred and then now a $200 million fund. So like, and, and he was able to invest in these, he saw the potential in these founders. Um, so like, you know, he's successful with this. Like, so like, you know, they, they, they he got an opportunity and, and, and you see, you see the return. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, I think that really, and a lot of VCs really need to start seeing that, that there's a huge opportunity here. Well, thank you, Derekus, for so much. Uh, I want to give you some time to, to shout out anything coming up. What should our audience be looking for and, and how can they find you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can find me uh, at Derekus at storecashapp.com uh, or um, our website at storecashapp.com. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, uh, reach out if you have any questions. And um, I know it's a tough process, this whole thing is. So. I don't mind helping in any way that I can. Uh, just just be willing to do the work. Well, thank you so much, Derekus. And for our listeners, you can subscribe to hear more episodes near you on wherever you get your podcast. And please leave comments on what you'd like to hear next. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Finding Diversity, The Missing Piece. You can expect new episodes monthly. And if you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps others like you find the show. Finding Diversity, The Missing Piece is powered by Cape Inclusion. It's produced by Studio Deed Podcast Production, directed by Prescott Wong and hosted by me, Justice Thompson. To learn more about how you can get started and to book a demo, visit us at capeinclusion.com.